0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me again, if you would. We are uh, dealing with the warnings to the eleven and uh, we're looking at let's go ahead and start with Luke 22 and then we will uh, turn over from there to John 13. I'm kind of curious to see if we can get through this all today and then use next week to introduce episode 22 or if it takes us today and next week to wrap this up, then uh, then that means that we'll have our break. And then uh, when we come back, uh, get ready for episode 22, which is the communion service, the uh, introduction of the Lord's uh, table to the uh, 11 believing disciples. As I mentioned, we have uh, two Wednesdays in February where no Life of Christ class will be conducted because of my missionary trip to Ukraine. There's also a Schaefer Conference, Pastors Conference in Houston in March. And so um, stay tuned for that and we'll see. uh, We'll announce that as we get closer. All right. Luke 22. Part of the warnings that the Lord issues with the departure of Judas is that the remaining 11 are going to have their own struggles and uh, they may not admit it. They don't want to admit it, but it's true. And uh, the present age in which we live, I like to think of it as the, uh, the age of satanic sifting. And uh, we see it here in this context. Looking at really verses... Oh, 31 through 38 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And that right there tells you everything you need to know. He doesn't say, uh, you know, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but don't worry about it because he would never be allowed to do such a thing. Doesn't say that. He says, but I have prayed for you. And this is the reality uh, the, the uh, role of Satan in, in testing believers. We see it in the age of Gentiles related to Job and we see it in the age of Israel related to David where Satan moved David to number the sons of Israel. The, uh, and I wonder which is worse, killing his family and afflicting him with physical affir- infirmities or uh, manipulating him into doing something in defiance of the will of God. And in my mind, that's a whole lot worse. Well, what is it that he's involved in today in the church age? We're told in this passage, sifting like wheat and um, some issues related to that. I think that we would do very well to consider what is the sifting process, the sifting process that God himself puts us through and how is that related or contrasted with the sifting process that Satan engages in and uh, different applications there. So any any event, that's where we presently are. I just saw a truck go past, which would be your responsibility. All right. We'll open with prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll get to our study. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love and grace. We thank you for your truth. We ask for the, uh, the uh, privilege and blessing of studying today to be blessed by you in every way, shape and form. Set aside distractions. Open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. In the overall outline, we are in the midst of point seven and main point seven, Jesus's departure, occasions, warnings to the eleven. And uh, for this, we've got a variety of different warnings that are all given as we contrast and compare the different gospel accounts. Uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, we saw as the main elements of uh, points A and B and really C as well, and then we turn to luke twenty two uh, the passage we were just looking at verses thirty one through thirty eight and then we will close this uh, section down with john thirteen verses thirty one through thirty eight uh, Jesus teaches the eleven that zechariah thirteen seven is about to be fulfilled, and that should be reason for rejoicing that the shepherd is going to be struck down, the sheep are going to be scattered. they don't like it. But it is the truth. It was, it was prophesied long ago. It is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. And it is necessary. He then advises them to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. Secondly, to point B, Peter and the other ten call Jesus a liar. Now maybe this is a forceful way of putting this point. But I think sometimes you need to put it this way. Um, when, when Jesus says something's going to happen. And then Peter says, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, then we need to have divine viewpoint that Jesus has one way of looking at it. Peter's got another way of looking at it and they can't both be right. And the Lord rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. And so these are the kind of tough messages that we have to humble ourselves and recognize that if it is the will of God and if this is what must take place, then we, we rejoice that the father is the one faithful to bring about his plan. And if we don't like it, well, We can either start liking it, or I guess, depending on what it is, we may not have to like it, but we do have to acknowledge that it will work together for good, and that it will. It may not be good, but it will work together for good. It will glorify Jesus Christ, and that's what we uh, appreciate on a faith basis. Not only do they call Jesus a liar, but they then accuse the Scriptures of being inaccurate. And the moment you start doing that, I think you are on shaky ground. I believe you're on thin ice, because God has magnified His Word in accordance with his name or even over his name, depending on how you take that, uh, <clears throat> that expression there in the Psalms. Regardless, he has magnified his word. And when we condemn it or criticize it or deny it, <clears throat> or we live in defiance of it, then we are opening ourselves up to that level of discipline. And uh, this then becomes interesting. And so they're both in play here. They're absolutely both in play here when we see it in Matthew 26, verses 33 through 35 and Mark 14, verses 29 through 31. And this becomes a humility test on the part of any uh, believer, particularly in the church age. But any believer, when being taught something from the word of God, you then have the (coughs) the humility test to say, well, (coughs) that's your opinion and I disagree with you. Right. (coughs) Which in the Lord's case is a pretty dangerous thing to do. (laughs) <laughs> OK, with a human pastor, you're on much better, better ground because the human pastor's uh, probably wrong. You know, or maybe he just needs to grow up or something of that nature. Check it out. Don't just believe it because the human pastor says so. But when you carry it, that second step and say, I disagree with the scriptures. Now you're in a lot of trouble. Now you're in a lot of trouble. All right. <clears throat> and uh, a passage like uh, Zechariah 13 is pretty clear. And uh, maybe if you had a a humble approach, you might look at it and say, well, let's let's come, let's reason together, let's examine the Scriptures, let's see if these things are so, let's evaluate whether or not we've got the appropriate hermeneutic that's being applied, we've got the appropriate application being applied, and so forth. That's a legitimate conversation. That's believers seeking the will of God and and asking for Him to to make that will known. But uh, that's a far cry from what we're looking at here. Here it's just a matter they don't like it. They don't like what it says, and so they, they're going to deny that that's what it says. You understand? And the moment that happens, there's discipline on the way. So, <laughs> the, uh, and this is just uh, not to belabor the point or to beat a dead horse or whatever, but this is just something that I've seen over the years. And believers that, uh, that, that are confrontational and, and, uh, and, and um, rebellious. In a lot of applications, we'll look you right in the eye, look the pastor right in the eye, and say, you're wrong, the Bible doesn't say that. And then you show them the passage. (laughs) And they say, well, I don't care, I don't like that. Well, that's a different matter, all right? But at least you've acknowledged that that's what it says. And whether you like it or not, or you don't care, or you're going to choose to not apply because you think you know better, that's, uh, that's a different conversation, all right? And that's one that really... Uh, It breaks the heart because it's not necessary to have that conversation. Thirdly, then. Jesus then prophesies the short term prophecy, which ought to encourage them the the truth that they're going to fall away is, you know, rather than say that it's insulting, (laughs) just say, all right. It's true. We all are going to fall away, but that's encouraging that he is going to be betrayed. The hand of the one betraying him is with him on the table and and all these things. It ought to be encouraging. He has this night down exactly right. And he is going to be betrayed. He is going to be arrested. They are going to lay hold of him. He will be tried. He will be executed. And since everything is fulfilled directly, literally, precisely as he said, We should, you and I, ought to be tremendous defenders of Second Advent prophecies, knowing that they will be just as literal, just as perfect, just as complete. We haven't seen them yet. It has been 2,000 years, but does that violate anything that he's promised? Do we just give up on what he's promised to say, well, it's been too long, we'll have to change our hermeneutic? No. He's not slow about his promise to some count slowness. And then point D, Luke records an important exhortation regarding the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. This is where we ran out of time, and this is where I want to pick right up. Satan demanded, but Jesus requested. And I love that contrast. Subpoint one, Satan demanded, but Jesus requested. Jesus goes to prayer. And any time we're in prayer, we are asking. Jesus demanded, but Jesus requested. He said, but I have prayed for you. Recognizing, of course, that our great uh, privilege to enter in a top circle is believe. To enter in a bottom circle is confess. To enter in a right circle is to ask. To go to the Father and ask. To engage in our priestly function. To bring all three circles of the cross and three circle diagram into uh, functional application. Our advocate before the Father is a tremendous blessing. And, And as we wrapped up our session last week, we looked at Job 1 and 2. We saw the role of uh, Satan uh, accusing and no real advocate present, just God himself on the throne, giving, uh, uh, giving rebuttals and, and giving Satan uh, opportunities and, and drawing the line in different places. In Zechariah 3, we actually see an advocate in view, one at the right hand who answers the accusation. And uh, dresses uh, Joshua the high priest in a clean robe and responds to Zechariah's prayer about a a turban being put on his head and, and different aspects there. In Romans 8, we start to find our own church age advocate. The fact that we do have this advocate before the Father and who can separate us, who can condemn us. Nobody can condemn us. God is the one who justifies. We are righteous in his sight. And so whatever charges that want to be filed against us, no charge is going to stick because uh, whatever the slander is, is false. And even if it's true, it's been laid on Jesus Christ and dealt with already judicially. And so any uh, any accusations that come, it's the father's good pleasure to say guilty as charged. But the sentence is executed on his son in our place. And so we can be very thankful for that. Also, the role of the uh, advocate that's described there in Hebrews seven twenty-five, Hebrews nine twenty-four, and 1 John 2, 1. And I hope that those passages come, come alive in our thinking as we recognize the uh, unbelievable privilege we have in the church age. To be royal family of God, there has been nothing like it ever in the unfolding of God's plan. Nor will there be. I, I wouldn't trade it for what's coming up. I wouldn't trade it for the coming millennium. I wouldn't trade it for the fullness of time. The thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ in perfect, sinless, Adamic humanity. I wouldn't trade the royal family of God for that. Alright? To be partakers of the divine nature. To be the bride of Christ in union with Christ as the body, uh, the head and the body speaks to. Now, secondly, even in failure, faith doesn't fail. Every failure you or I have, is not a failure of faith. might be my failure to make use of faith, um, but faith itself did not fail. Faith will never fail. We walk by faith, not by sight. We have victory every time. If we stop using faith, that doesn't mean that faith failed. It means that we failed in the application of faith. But even then, veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. Veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. And you're a veteran of testing for every test you've passed. And you're a veteran of testing for every test you've failed. And even if you failed 12 times and finally passed on your 13th do-over, <laughs> okay, you are a multiplied veteran. And you're a veteran in both capacities. A veteran of learning by failure and a veteran of Learning by victory. A lot of respects, learning by victory is harder to do because learning by failure means uh, we we can't boast in ourselves and all we can do is just pick ourselves up and confess and get back in fellowship and and grieve and and, uh, repent and do better and, and so forth. The sad thing is, is oftentimes when we are veterans of success, we can get boastful and prideful and full of ourselves because of that success. And we can, uh, we can thrive because Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I say to you that you are now Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and so forth. You can have the most thrilling victory that the Gospel record gives us of any of the twelve apostles. And that can be a huge problem because that goes straight to our big fat heads, and then next thing you know, it's get behind me Satan, just one paragraph later in Matthew 16. So even in failure, faith doesn't fail, and veterans of testing are tasked that as they are given the the assignment to equip others. And in the same context here of Luke 22, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But is it? We find out, yes, it is. And you, when once you have turned again... So you, Peter, when once you have turned again, the idea of repentance, the change of direction, all right? And uh, the fact that he is going to turn tail, he is going to run, he's going to fall away. They're all going to fall away this night. Even the ones that say they're not going to are going to. And uh, even the two that follow at a distance, which we'll observe, John and Peter are going to follow at a distance uh, to, uh, to try to eavesdrop on some of the trials. Uh, John will even be allowed to sneak into the high priest's house because he's got family connections with some of the servants there. But um, the, uh, they're going to be standing at a distance. John's the only one that will have any kind of proximity to the cross, standing there next to Jesus' mother and some of the other women. Um, Peter, I believe, is an eyewitness of the cross, but at such a tremendous distance that when he writes about it later on in 1 Peter, that it is, it is, uh, it is almost in passing and it's almost in, uh, discouragement. You understand? And as far as the gospel records are concerned, there is no glimmer of Peter being anywhere nearby in, uh, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so here's a prayer by our intercessor, by our advocate at the Father's right hand. And uh, it's a prayer that uh, is what I call the prayer for the, uh, the optimum will of God. The ideal prayer. Prayer for the optimum. That your faith may not fail. That you pass every test you ever encounter. Well, now we can pray that. We can ask that. But is it realistic to think that uh, these people we're praying for are going to have victory every single time with never a stumble, not even once? Of course not. Our Savior Himself is the only one that has the optimum that has a perfect 100% record of fulfillment. But it, does that stop us from praying the optimum will of God? No. We would always want to pray in the optimum will of God. We would never want to go to the Father in prayer and say, "Father, I give you my children, I pray for my son, he's overseas he's He's out from under my authority, he's out from under my observation uh, uh, he's, he's going to make decisions on his own, he's going to face consequences on his own and Father, I just ask and pray, Father, please keep him in your will most of the time. <laughs> you know, Father, please let him uh, let him bat three hundred or you know." Let a, What do we pray for? We pray for the optimum. The optimum will of God that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. Whether you pass the test or whether you fail the test, you've learned lessons from it. You've got the opportunity to come alongside and to task others. Let me give you one Passage is not on the screen here, but I've, I've taken you here a handful of times. Can you tell me where I'm going? No? If you tell me where I'm going, then I know that I've gone there too many times. Yeah, Psalm 51. All right, Psalm 51. Let's take a look at that. And uh, I obviously haven't taken you here too many times. Psalm 51. Now, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. In fact, this is nine months later. He has remained in darkness all this time. He has felt that he's gotten away with it after trying to cover it up in different ways and then murdering Uriah and then covering his tracks. And he thinks he's getting away with it. And he's still in carnality nine months later when this baby is born. So... uh, I enjoy this. Not only, I mean, it goes well with 1 John 1, nine, it, it provides for us doctrine as it pertains to our confession and restoration to fellowship. But it also, I think, speaks to prolonged carnality and the damage that we do when we, when we delay, when we put it off. When we know we should confess, we should get right. But we deliberately don't. And we end up compounding our discipline in the meantime. And uh, we see this here. He says, be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, it's chesed all the way. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserve it. When we confess our sins, he doesn't forgive us because we've earned it. He forgives us because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The longer you defer, let me just say the quicker you can confess it, the quicker you can advance beyond it, the quicker you can put it behind you, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, the better you're going to be at cleansing your mind from these things, not allowing the guilt of them to keep beating you up, not keeping that right before you at all times. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. We tend to think that he sinned against Uriah, right? When he committed adultery with his wife and he sinned against Uriah when he murdered him. No, those weren't sins against Uriah. They were sins against God. All sin is against God. God is the only being in the universe with the unchangeable, eternal, absolute standard of perfect righteousness. Uriah is a sinner, same as David. We don't sin against one another. We sin against God's standard of righteousness. And we do offend others, and we have to remedy that in various recompense applications. But as far as the sin goes and missing the mark, it's God and God only. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That's a testimony to our universal depravity in Adam and the nature of all humanity born into sin. Behold you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. And this is the only way that true confession can take place. It's got to be from your core. It's got to be complete homologeo. It's got to be a total agreement. God says this, you you're in total agreement, you legeo the same the same homo homo, okay? It's uh homologeo is our verb for confession. God says it, you say the same thing. And that's coming from your innermost being, that truth. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. See, I think a lot of our confession is superficial. A lot of our confession is uh, what Pastor Eichmann calls mechanical legalism. Where a believer just says, well, I went through the mechanical process of it. I confessed it. I said the words. You know, dear Heavenly Father, I committed this sin. In Jesus' name, amen. But is that a homologo? Is that truth expressed from your innermost being? Or is your innermost being still in rebellion? Is it the innermost being that says, and I liked it and I'm going to do it again? At which point, because you've the words, is that going to have value in something? Is this some kind of an incantation? We're, we're spellcasters now? We just say the words and hocus pocus, we're back in fellowship again? You desire truth in the innermost being. If your core is still unrepentant, then the external uh, confession has no value. Make me to hear joy and gladness. This shows you the divine discipline that has wreaked uh, in his soul. No capacity for any inner, inner happiness, mental attitude, peace. But the bones which you have broken rejoice. The longer you delay, the more serious those consequences get. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, that's what we think about when we think about cleansing us from all unrighteousness, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But look what else he says here. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I don't know that this has an equivalent term in 1 John 1. But this, uh, this deals with, I think, the, the ongoing damage that's done with the prolonged carnality. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He doesn't have that steadfast spirit. And it's going to take time to build that endurance up. See, and so he's asking the Father to provide for that, to create that, to renew that. As if uh, he recognizes, you know what, I've been in darkness for so long, my volition is fragile. My willpower is dead. I can't, you know, if, if, if you don't renew a steadfast spirit within me, Lord, then tomorrow I'm going right back into the vomit where I've been these last nine months. I believe if we're honest with ourselves, I think if you've been in the woods for a while and you're just coming out of the woods, well, praise God that you are. We're thankful that you are. But be humble enough to recognize that you're not that far out of the woods. And until you're out for a lengthy period of time, don't think that uh, you know, a week later you're still walking fine, or a month later even. If you've been months and years into that darkness, expect it. months and years of humility before the Lord saying, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Retrain my mind. Flush these other thoughts and memories and patterns and, and uh, addictions. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I would be uh, not only in a crash program for feeding and teaching, but I would be in prayer meeting and I'd be praying with my spouse and praying with my pastor and praying with deacons and praying with anybody I could to say, you know, pray for me in this regard because my volition isn't going to be strong enough to deal with that. Then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, I think that goes well with uh, the... um, Verse eight, make me to hear joy and gladness and sustain me with a willing spirit. You provide the volition when I don't have it, Father. You provide the volition when I don't have it. Sustain me with a willing spirit. You know, when you're in fellowship, uh, pre uh, pre pray, uh, pray for your upcoming volitional failures. Say, Father. Overrule, organize the circumstances So that uh, you can thwart my negative volition. I'm giving you my volition, Father. Sustain me with a willing spirit because I don't have it yet. I do not have it yet. Put believers in my periphery that do have it, that do have a willing spirit to come alongside and bear my burdens because I can't bear them. Then he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. Now, this is the verse that comes down to the point that I put on the screen. Veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. Veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. You say, well, he failed his test. What can he teach? He can teach others not to fail that test the way he failed them. <laughs> Okay. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Sinners will be converted to you. Schaefer had a verse last Sunday night where he said he was having a hard time pointing his fingers on an Old Testament passage talking about the conversion of sinners. I think it's it right there. I wish I would have thought of this Sunday night. All right. And I think it's interesting. He makes a difference between transgressors and sinners. One that needs teaching and one that needs conversion. We've got an opportunity to minister to both. Maybe they are born again, but they're not walking like it. Maybe they're not born again. They need salvation. Either way, we need to fulfill the Great Commission that is to make disciples. So even if failure, faith doesn't fail, and veterans of testing are tasked with equipping others. Now, this is a humility test. Because in, in a lot of respects, uh, believers are going to make choices that they don't want to, uh, to bear this fruit. They don't want to take on this assignment. They don't want to come alongside because the moment they do that, then they have to admit to somebody else something that they would much rather just kind of keep secret and hidden away. They don't want to go tell uh, somebody that, that, uh, that they used to be a drug addict and, and so that they understand and relate and want to pray for and want to warn this other person what they're dealing with. Or that they used to be an alcoholic or that, uh, that they used to have whatever this addiction is, that sin pattern and what have you. I don't want anybody to know that, you know, I I struggle with this. They might think less of me. So your pride outweighs their pending doom. What's worth more? Seeing them rescued from the fire? Or uh, saving a little bit of your own uh, ego or your own uh, pride or whatever it might be? All right. He says, um, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. This is your assignment to teach and to praise God. Not to praise God that you did those dumb things, but to praise God that he brought you through it, that he humbled you after it, that he restored you beyond it. That God's a God of grace. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. And so there it is. Thirdly then, as we wrap up the last of the details in Luke 22, let's look at verses 35-38. through Point three, the ministry of the eleven is now different than it was previously. The ministry of the eleven. In Greek, you've got dodeca for twelve or hendeca for eleven. This is the new hendecological ministry. It won't stay eleven though. Before Pentecost, it's it's imperative that they assign a twelfth. They have to complete the twelfth. And so prior to Pentecost, they will select Matthias to to complete the twelve. The twelve are apostles of the Lamb that have dispensation of Israel rewards in addition to dispensation of church rewards. We will evaluate that as we get that far. But the ministry of the eleven is now different than it was previously. And look at this now. And, and we've got to focus on this. I want to teach this today. I want to teach this as well out of John 13. And in a lot of ways, this is among the most important scripture you're going to see. Luke 22. Um, I prayed for you, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But now verses, well, you got the denial and so forth. But uh, look at verses 35 through 38. And he said to them, when I sent you out, that is before in the past, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And this is with reference to at least two prior training ministry assignments. One in chapter 9 and one in chapter 10. And we'll see those here today. So, what did you learn from that? Did you learn anything from that? And they report back what they learned. No, we didn't lack for anything. Your grace is sufficient. You provide. But now notice what he says. And he said to them, but now, but now, all right, you had you had a form of ministry before. Now, he said, and you learned lessons from that before you learned how to operate under those conditions before. But now there's new procedures in place. Now there are new circumstances. Now there are new conditions. He says, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. You got a money belt. You're going to need it. You're going to need it. That grace provision you relied on before isn't going to be there at this time. Likewise, also a bag. Likewise, also a bag. That is, whoever has a bag is to take it along. And so uh, you got 11 of you. Maybe three of you have money belts. Maybe two of you have bags. We got any swords in the group? Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, we'll look at the coats in some of the previous instructions, but this is different. For I tell you that uh, this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And you notice he's quoting scripture here. And none of them are daring at this point now <laughs> to say, no, this shall never happen to you. At this point, you wonder, are they just in a total surrender? And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. All right. So if you got a congregation and uh, 200 church members on a Sunday morning, how many have to be concealed weapon permit? They don't all need to be, but do you have some? Is it enough? I'm on MP3 and this is being posted to the website, so I'm not going to finish that conversation. If anyone thinks of coming in here and doing something stupid, uh, they might learn the answer. All right. Now, let's back up a little bit. Let's look at chapter 9. Let's look at chapter 10 because this was part of their training. And these are episodes we've already covered. Luke 9, verses 3 through 6. And he called the twelve. Hoi Dotica. This includes Judas Iscariot, the unbeliever. He called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons. And to heal diseases. That includes Judas Iscariot, the unbeliever. That boggles my mind. I just, (laughs) you know. Man, Judas, heal yourself. (laughs) Right? Cast out your own demons. Get saved. Do something. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And we want to recognize this is a different phase of their training. This is a different phase of their ministry. This is uh, early in the Galilean ministry, prior to feeding the 5,000. Prior to This is while his uh, popularity is still ascending. This is before the national rejection of the kingdom. This is before he starts to tell them that he's going to the cross. This is before he starts to tell them, stop telling people who I am. And so they have the signs and the wonders to establish their credentials. That they are sent from the Father. They are sent from the one who was sent from the Father. They are sent from the Son. And so he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. This is still during the early phase of the Lord's ministry where the kingdom of God is at hand. We're not proclaiming that any longer. And uh, the the message we proclaim does not require the signs and wonders that was needed in the uh, early days of the church, in the apostolic age of the church. And then here's these uh, logistic instructions for the logistical grace supply. He said to them in verse three, take nothing for your journey. Nothing. Neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. So this is just a complete and total reliance on grace provision. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. There will be hospitality provided. And so uh, food will be provided and, and uh, there won't be any expenses incurred. You won't have to buy food. It will be provided in the house that you arrive in. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for you, or as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so uh, they have a training ministry and they go out probably two by two, probably six pairs of two here. Who was who was paired up with the unbeliever? Probably Judas, uh, probably Simon the Zealot, just the way that they're uh, numbered off. And uh, especially if the Zealot Party and the Sakari Party are related, then uh, they're both uh, part of the terrorist assassination type network. Let's see. They come back in uh, verse 10. So in between, there's uh, some confusion here, and Herod can't figure out what's going on. But then in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. But here's their training ministry. We do something similar here. I'm going to come back from Ukraine and, and talk to the men that are teaching in my absence and say, "What did you learn? What happened? How did you grow? And uh, taking uh, them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. And uh, different applications there. I think if you read the parallel account here in Mark, probably at some point, they were all excited because they could cast out demons. (laughs) Oh, we got these superpowers. We can do this. We can do that. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We're not you know, we're not a ministry to celebrate how awesome it is for us and what we get out of it and what we can do. It's a humility application. So there's uh that. And so he, he asked him, he says, Think back to that time when, when I sent you out and you had no money belt, and you had no bag, did did you go hungry? Did my father provide for you? And they were able to learn from that and testify, yes. He did. All right, next chapter. There's another episode in chapter 10. And the benefit we have of being in Luke rather than Matthew or Mark is that uh, those Gospels don't record what Luke 10 records. That's the, that's the purpose for uh, enjoying that. I, I do regret that we don't have the, uh, we don't have the uh, statements that I was just referring to. And that's okay. Uh, Luke chapter 10, then. Verses uh, four through 12. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Who are these guys? These aren't the 12. These are 70 others beyond the 12. And sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. You kind of wonder when he was sending the disciples out two by two. Uh, That meant that, uh, you know, they were able to precede him in about six different directions. But now, man, they're going 35 different directions, two by two. And how's the adversary going to keep track of where Jesus is going next when he's got these teams going 35 different directions? And he was saying to them the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We want more laborers. Are there people doing the work? Let's get more. Go behold I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And with similar instructions to the seventy that were given to the 12 in chapter 9. Carry no money belt. Carry no money belt. You're not to buy your provisions. Grace will supply your provisions. Carry no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. If uh, your peace rests on him, and this is the assignment for your hospitality, you'll notice, verse 7, then stay in that house. This is why you don't need money. It's why you don't need to... to uh, Uh, Spend money at the the Motel 6 and and uh, buy food at at McDonald's and and all the other expenses that that you incur in your uh, traveling situation. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. The one that you stay will be your hospitality for the duration of your time in that city. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal those in it who are sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out of, the, of its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wrap off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So these are the instructions here. If, uh, if, if you're welcome, then you're welcome. If you're not, then you're not. You're not forcing anything. It's like when you're given the gospel and you say, can I ask you a question? And has anyone ever shown you from the Bible how you can know that you have eternal life? And if they have no interest in that and say, oh, I don't care, go away. What are you going to do? Go away. That's right. We're not here to talk people into something or couldn't force them if we wanted to. But if they're hungry, if they're positive, they have questions, answer their questions. All right, so... These were the two previous times that they were sent out. The twelve that were sent out without purse or money bag or a bag. Uh, the twelve that were sent out without bag, without um, supply and so forth. But we understand now here in Luke uh, 22, circumstances are now different. He says, but now, but now we have a different Situation that we're dealing with. There's a different phase to this ministry. And. um, This cannot be overlooked. I think the people who do overlook this, uh, they overlook it here and they overlook it in John. And that's where we want to go next, because overlooking this, I think, fails to identify why the teaching in John. Uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17 has church application rather than Israel application, and we need to we need to recognize that. So, as long as we spot the fact that it is now different, he said in verse 36 says he said to them, but now, but now, new circumstances, new operating procedures. You're going to need a money belt. You're going to need a bag. You're going to need swords. Swords are going to be more important than your coat. All right. And then uh, Gethsemane right after that. Point E. John records the Lord's emphasis on immediate glory and the new commandment, the new church age commandment. John records the Lord's emphasis on immediate glory, immediate glory. And the new commandment. The church age commandment. John 13 verses 31 through 35. No wonder this, we've got subpoints one, two, three, 1, 2, 3, and 4. And if I race through it in the next 13 minutes, we can wrap it all up. If, uh, if I don't, then uh, we can spend some time on this next week. The, um, the reason why I'm hoping that we can understand the, the difference here, the idea of immediate glory. Israel didn't have immediate glory. Israel, in fact, their glory departed from the temple. Uh, Ezekiel saw the glory of God depart from the temple. The Shekinah glory departed from the temple before Babylon destroyed it. And when it was rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah, the glory never returned. Shekinah glory never occupied Ezra's temple. And it's interesting, all of the promise of glory for Israel in the exile and post-exile portion of the Old Testament, and even prior to that, the idea of glory was a future glory. A, a glory that awaits the return of Messiah, the glory that awaits the kingdom, the glory that awaits the destruction of the Gentiles, the glory that awaits the, uh, the peace to come. Israel had no expectation of an immediate glory, but we do. We do have expectation of immediate glory. We operate in the immediate glory. Those of us that have been called have been justified, we've been glorified. We walk in this immediate glory. Everything we do is immediate glory to our Son, to I'm sorry, to our Father and to His Son when we do it for His glory. I'm going to show you what we're talking about as we look at this. But verse 31 of John 13, and and I mentioned this last week. Uh, Once again, I want to bring this to your attention. It is the split second that the devil is out the door. Satan enters into Judas. The Lord says, what you do, do quickly. And after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, as he had gone out, that split moment he had gone out, Jesus said, now, at this time, at this moment, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, and He is, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him when? In the coming kingdom? At second advent? Immediately, thank you Will glorify him immediately. And so, for once, our culture will work in our favor. There are a lot of times I lament our microwave society. There are occasions when I lament our inability to wait for things because we have to have it now. And if popcorn takes three minutes, that's too long. All right? We want stuff microwaved in 30 seconds or less. In fact, 10 seconds or less would be better. And, you know, it's almost to the point where the microwave takes too long anymore. (laughs) All right. Well, here is an application whereby immediacy is the procedure. And it's the glory of our Savior, the glory of our, of our Father's Son, and how the Father and Son actually glorify each other in this process. So, if you pay attention here, or if you don't pay attention, you can get lost in the hymns. Okay, there's a whole lot of hymns in verse 32, right? God is glorified in Him. God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. And if, you, if you're sloppy there, then you get turned around in the Him who? Is that Father or Son? Him. Okay, that's why we want to slow down and, and evaluate it. But now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of God glorified. And all of the time that he said, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. On Palm Monday, he entered Jerusalem and he said, the hour has come. And he said, Father, glorify your name. And the father said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And there's going to be repeated glorifications that will take place on Palm Monday, on um, each day of this week, on Good Friday on Resurrection Sunday. There's going to be repeated glory, repeated glory, repeated glory. And the purpose for glorifying the Son is why? God, So that God Himself will be glorified in the Son. So now is the Son of Man glorified and God the Father is glorified in Christ. In God the Son. Now, as when we come back and look at this, We have a perspective to relate to this in a way that the the eleven listening to this that night had no clues. The church is a mystery when they're first hearing this and they have no clues. They are completely oblivious of you and I and the age in which we live. The concept of of Gentile scriptures being written in in Greek. Are you kidding me? The concept of of a body of Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ That is nowhere in their expectation. The idea of a corporate body baptized into union in Christ, they've got no framework for that. They don't have a book of Ephesians. They don't know anything like we know. So what are they going to understand when he says God the Father is going to be glorified in Christ? In Him. In the Son. Okay? Okay. You and I are going to understand a whole lot more. And we're going to see where we fit in these verses. Because where are we? We're in Christ. We are a part of what glorifies the Son and what glorifies the Father in Him, in Christ. Assuming that we embrace this doctrine and and recognize our role to glorify the Father in Christ. And if God is glorified in Him, in Christ... God will also glorify Christ in Himself. And here's a positional truth. If if we understand what being in Christ is all about, what is being in Father about? Because Jesus is in Father. And we are in Christ. So if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. God the Father will glorify Jesus Christ in himself, in the Father, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. There is a new emphasis that these apostles are going to have to embrace And they're going to have to continue an apostolic ministry with a resurrected, glorified, and ascended Savior. They're going to have to enter into a new ministry with Jesus Christ back in heaven. No longer with them. Are they able to handle that? Are they able to deal with that? And so when he says, a new commandment I give you. This is a commandment with Jesus Christ exalted and glorified in the Father in heaven. This is a commandment with church age apostles operating in the realm of in Christ, in the Father, with his immediate glory. This is church age being described, but he can't spell it out totally because church is still mystery. You understand this? It cannot be clear. Until the Holy Spirit descends. Then they're going to start to understand these things. Not until. Not until. You know, we have glimpses of this, not only here in in these chapters, 13 through 17, but even way back to to chapter 2, the... um, The first, uh, the first miracle. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. But He was speaking of the temple of His body. So when He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this. And then, at that time, they believed the Scriptures. And the word which Jesus had spoken. And there's other stories like that as well where they didn't understand. because Or or we see, well, by this he spoke of the Spirit. But they didn't understand it yet because the Spirit had not yet been given. And we have statements like that. We we need to identify with them so that... um, he realized there was a whole lot going on on this night that he was preparing them for but he, but they're not going to understand it until the holy spirit comes does that make sense hope so all right yeah there was something else that he spoke of the holy spirit and they did not understand it Because the Spirit had not yet been given. Okay. Well, I'll spot that for next week. We'll look at that. Now, um, under this, we've got to understand the nature of the new things, the nature of the new commandment. Is he expanding on Mosaic law? Is he adding commandment number 11 to the Decalogue? Is he adding commandment 613 to the or 614 to the total uh, civil, ceremonial and um, priestly code? When he says a new commandment I'm giving you, what's he doing? He's giving them one commandment, one abiding commandment that overrides everything else in the operation of the church. one commandment. You and I have one commandment. Love one another, yeah. Agape love for one another. That's our one commandment. And like you, I would expect you would agree with me. I I don't want to go back to the 613 under law. I I want to walk in Christ who fulfills the law, Christ who's the end of the law for all who believe, and I want to obey the one commandment, which is a positive commandment. And if you think about it, this is like going back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had one commandment which was a prohibition, don't eat from that tree. We have one commandment, which is a positive commandment to love one another. And so we have to identify that this is new. If we can embrace this, then we're in good shape. If we can identify that this is a new commandment given after the unbeliever leaves, that he gives them this teaching related to the church, that he institutes communion for the church, and he's doing this on the night in which he's betrayed, preparing them for what they're going to have to live after he's gone, will do real well. And it's because of the text and the reasons in the text that we take these chapters to be church rather than Israel. Is that clear? On the flip side, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, are Israel, not the church? The reason why? Because of the indicators in that text. Because of the, uh, the, the hermeneutical controls and the indicators that we have in that text. And, and we are totally driven by what is revealed in the text. In Matthew 24 and 25, we're dealing with nations and wars and, and Jerusalem surrounded and all the things pertaining to Second Advent and Israel's prophesied future. Nothing in those chapters pertains to the church. And so if you, when you encounter confused believers who try to say that the Olivet Discourse applies to the church, that one is taken, one is left, has to be rapture, and all this other stupid stuff. And you end up with believers in a post-millennial or all-millennial or a confused eschatology looking for wars and rumors of wars to be some kind of a fulfillment or looking at earthquakes as if it means something in the church age. You've got to understand upper room discourse, John thirteen through seventeen, church. All of it discourse, Matthew twenty four and twenty-five, Israel. Don't mix those up. And we don't we don't take those passages that way because it fits our diagrams. We take those passages that way because the text demands we take those passages that way. And then we draw the diagrams after that. All right. Father, thank you for your truth. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand these things. Help us to think our way through these things and recognize them to be able to teach others how it is that we can handle these passages, how it is that we can identify those portions of the Gospel of John that are so clearly applicable to the church, not to Israel. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Father, this is what pleases you. We are are to be... um, presenting ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, equip us to be able to rightly divide and equip us to give an answer to those that are wrongly dividing. And, Father, uh, allow for this word to go forth and to glorify your Son, and through your Son to glorify you. Thank you for the age of immediate glorification, Father. I pray that we would study this and learn this and make application immediately. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.